how it lights my path, how it guides my way. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Oh, Jesus, we um, stand with Kadeem now and just pray that your anointing Holy Spirit would be on him as he speaks to us. Jesus, we love you. We come expectant today to hear your words spoken to us, that it will bring life to us as we listen to Kadeem's words and through he, you speaking through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for receiving me and Rachel and Daniel today. And thank you so much for the worship. I was so blessed by it. I was so blessed that you started with a Wesley hymn, Andy. Um, no, honestly, it's a privilege to be amongst you guys. Cool. And what I want us to think a bit about is the fact that through the incarnation, through this wonderful thing that we've been celebrating, that God became a man, through that, we get to see with crystal clear vision now what pleases God. In the man Jesus, when we look at him and we see the human emotions he expresses, we get a picture, a window into the heart of God. We can see what pleases him, what displeases him. If you think about a very famous verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We see a crystal clear picture of the heart of God. We see what grieves and makes God sad. It's human death. It's the mourning, the pain of that experience. And God shares that pain and we see that in the person of Jesus. But we can also look at what makes Jesus smile. The moments when he celebrates, the moments when he shows joy and we see something of the heart of God. We see what pleases him. And I don't know if you caught it, but in this verse, there is an exceptional statement. It's this, that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. This is truly an exceptional statement. There is nothing like this in the Gospels. Not only is this word rejoiced greatly, not the usual word the Bible uses for rejoicing, but it's in the Holy Spirit. It's something deep. It's something of substance. And the question is, for us who want to please Jesus, who want to live a life that pleases God, the question is, what made Jesus rejoice in this way? What blessed him? 
And to answer that, we have to look a bit at the context, the passage we just read out. So this is the story where Jesus sends out the 72 disciples two by two. And they come back, and this is where we picked up. And this is the 72 returned with joy. And I've put up the Greek word there just to show you this is the usual word for joy. They returned with joy. And of course, who wouldn't? If you went out casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom, who wouldn't come back with joy? But Jesus responds to them and says, don't rejoice at this same word. Don't have joy at this. And he says, I tell you, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that God knows your name. Rejoice that he's pleased to call you one of his own, that your name is recorded in that book of the people that belong to him, who know him and who loves him. And then in the very next verse, or as Luke says it, in that same hour, Jesus puts into practice what he was telling the disciples to do. He says, in that same hour, he rejoiced greatly. And this is a more intense kind of rejoicing. It shows the depth of Jesus's joy in what? That these disciples have been caught up in this thing where they're relating to the Father through the Son. And they're knowing the Son because the Father has showed it to him. Basically, because these disciples, who are practically nobodies, have come to know God. That is what has brought Jesus joy. And we see something of a party breaking out amongst the Trinity as Jesus rejoices in the Spirit and then calls out to his Father. It is an incredible moment. Why? Because they've entered into a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I wonder if this reminds you, this talk of joy in heaven and knowing God reminds you of some stories that Jesus told the parables of the lost things. Because he puts these three parables alongside each other, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. And they have so many similar components. And when you look at the components that they share in common, it kind of emphasizes the point that Jesus is making by sharing these three parables together. And one of them, if you look in Luke 15, one of the things every parable shares in common is these words right at the end when the lost thing is found. Rejoice with me, for I found my lost sheep. Rejoice with me, for I found my lost coin. It was fitting that we celebrate and rejoice because this lost lost son of mine was found. It is the same sense of joy that Jesus not just shows us is in the heart of God, but teaches us is in the heart of God. And why does it come? Because someone has entered into a relationship with God. And the reason I'm saying this to you is because at the start of this new year, I want to encourage you with the encouragement I'm trying to give myself. I want to challenge you with the challenge I'm trying to give myself. And I'm so glad that so many of you didn't have a New Year's resolution because I've come to bring you one. I want to encourage you that this year in 2023 to make it your goal to bring one person into a living relationship with Jesus. One person, whether that's someone, a friend, a family member, a work colleague, someone in church who you know hasn't quite grasped it yet, someone who you don't know at all, one person to bring into a living relationship with God. Why? 
because it causes him so much joy, that kind of deep rejoicing that we see in Luke 10, that we hear about in Luke 15. That is what blesses the heart of God. Is that a good New Year's goal to have, to put a smile on your God's face? And to unpack this, I just want to, I'm going to give you kind of three little preambles about why I'm saying this. And then I'm going to give you three very, very practical points about, if you're with me, how you might see this happen, okay? So the first preamble is, I really want you to consider making this a goal for 2023, to bring one person to the Lord. But I also really want you to know that this doesn't have to feel like a heavy thing, And the reason I say that is because when you think about the nature of what we're talking about, that someone would be brought into a living relationship with God, the heavy burden is with Jesus. Yes, there are things you have to do. We're going to talk about that. You have a responsibility. But it is Jesus who reveals himself. It's Jesus who does the converting. So I want you to carry this as a serious goal, but I want you to know that it doesn't have to feel like a heavy thing. The second thing I want to say to you, and this is particularly if as soon as I've said this, you thought, that's not me. I'm not going to be able to do that. I'm not that kind of person. It's for those people over there. And what I want to say is that the Lord needs all different types of people to reach all different types of people. I went to the cinema um, last week. And um, as I kind of, I don't go to the cinema very often. And as I stood in this foyer and I was just looking around at all of these different kinds of people, I was struck again by this reality, which I've believed for a long time, is that there is so many different kinds of people out there. And the Lord truly needs all different kinds of people. So if you think, oh, I'm someone, I'm not very eloquent with words. There are people out there who aren't very eloquent with words that the Lord needs you to reach. If you think, oh, I'm someone, I don't have hobbies like everyone else in church. I like this different kind. There are people out there with those kind of hobbies that the Lord needs you to reach. And I'm not saying that you can only reach someone who's like you. But I am saying that there are going to be people that you can build a relationship with, that you can show and display and describe Jesus to in a way that other people aren't going to be. This is for every single one of us because we need all different kinds of people to reach all different kinds of people. The last um, small little preamble I want to give is I just want you to think about this. Imagine every single person in this room chose to take this goal seriously and they decided, yes, I want to make that my goal. And I think it's fair to say maybe 15% of people would succeed in the sense that maybe only 15 or 20 people percent of people in this room would actually see someone come to know Jesus. Not because there's only 15% of you are good evangelists, but because it depends on other people's response. Like we said, we don't do the heavy lifting. It's um, up to people if they want to receive Jesus. But of course, we know that we're partnering with a God who longs and who is powerful and who is willing to welcome people in, no matter where they're coming from. And so, of course, we expect that some people will come to know Jesus. So just imagine that, 20%, 15% of people. That's about 15 or 20 people entering church this year. And even the others who didn't, that is so many seeds sown that will maybe bear fruit next year, or maybe the next year, or maybe in 10 years, maybe in 50 years. But my point is... 
that if we want the church to grow, we need to get serious about the fact that every single one of us have a part to play. That is how the church is going to grow if we want to get on with this task that Jesus has given us of evangelizing the world. It needs to be a all of us kind of thing. We all need to be in our relationships, in our church on the streets. However, we need, all need to be reaching out. So those are my three little preambles. Now, I want to just talk through some practical points about how this might happen. And the first is that we have to start in prayer. Do you know, the disciples clearly must have seen something in Jesus when they first chose to leave their lives behind and follow him. Obviously, they saw something in this man. But also, as we read the Gospels, we see clearly they didn't quite get it most of the time. They didn't quite understand Jesus. They didn't quite know who he was or what he was really about. But then every now and again, you get these moments like this passage in Luke 10, where it just seems that something clicks for them. They just, they seem to get it. They have a moment of revelation. And you know, you wonder and you ask the question, I wonder how much prayer went into that moment. I wonder if Jesus was lifting up these 12 young men every night before he went to bed. And of course, we're never going to know exactly. But actually, there are hints sometimes. In another one of those moments, probably the most famous, do you know Jesus takes his disciples out of town for a bit and he says to them, who, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, do you know, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then Jesus comes with the question he really wants to ask. Peter, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter's glory moment. He gets it. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's an incredible story. It's a well-known story. I wonder if you've noticed before how it starts in Luke. It says, now it happens that as Jesus was praying and the disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? These moments start with prayer. And if we want to take this goal seriously of seeing someone in our lives come to know Jesus this year, it needs to start with prayer. And maybe you already know who those people are. Maybe as soon as I've said this, you've said, yep, that is one person or those two people I really want to know Jesus I want to encourage you to pray for them every single day this year. It doesn't have to be amazingly eloquent prayers. It doesn't have to be loud prayers. It doesn't have to be long prayers. I just want to encourage you to pray for them consistently. And maybe you don't know who those people are. Maybe you think, I don't even know who I would put on my list. You can start in prayer. You can ask the Lord to highlight people to you. You can ask him to bring people into your life. See, when we start in prayer and we stop, begin praying for someone daily, we begin to look out for opportunities that the Lord might be opening up for us to be able to share something of Jesus with them. As we begin to pray for people, God starts to impress something of his heart onto us for them. And maybe we hear God speak. Maybe he gives us a word to encourage and fuel our prayers or even to share with them. But of course, when we start in prayer, what we know is that it is powerful to change things. Prayer is, prayer is powerful to soften people's hearts, to truly receive Jesus. I want to encourage you to be consistent in praying for these people that we're longing to see Jesus. 
over the holidays, I was um, in Bristol. That's where Rachel's family's from. That's where I lived for a few years. And I don't know if you know much about Bristol, but it has an incredible spiritual, spiritual heritage. So the Wesleys used to have a base there. George Miller used to have a base there. In fact, many of the houses, I don't know if you know much about George Miller, but he cared for thousands and thousands of orphanages and saw these amazing buildings built by prayer that still stand today. And actually, Rachel used to work in the George Miller Museum. And on this little kind of recreated desk they have of his, he has some rec a record book. He was a very meticulous man. And he has a record of the name of every single child that passed through any of his orphanages whilst he was there alive. And it has the usual kind of details you'd expect, you know, age, when they came, etc., when they left. But next to it, it has a little column, whether they came to know Jesus or not. Because every day he was praying for them. And there's so many, yes, yes, yes there. Of course there are some no's. Another incredible story about this man, Muller, is that, and you might have heard this one before, is that at one point he decided to take up something of the goal that I'm trying to encourage you to take up now. He decided to pray for five people that he knew, friends of family, family members, etc. And for the first year, he was praying every day, and not a single person came to the Lord. But six months later, so 18 months in, one of them came to know Jesus. It's a true story. The next year, he began praying, consistently praying every day for these people. None of them came to the Lord. The next year, none of them came to the Lord. It was five years later, the next person came to the Lord. Again, continued praying. Six years later, the next year, six years from that five years, the next person came to the Lord. He continued praying for 52 years until he died for these five people. Two of them didn't come to know the Lord. And then within a year of him dying, those two came to know the Lord. I want to encourage you. I don't know if he was, what kind of prayers he was praying. I know he was praying consistently. And I want to encourage you that as you think about this goal, as you think about the people that you want to come to know Jesus this year, to just pray consistently. Just pray every day. There are so many habits we have that we do daily. Just make this one. It doesn't have to be flash. It just has to be consistent. The next point I want to make is that we need to boldly take opportunities. See, prayer is almost everything, but it is not everything. Because when we're praying, we need to actually step into the opportunities that prayer opens up for us. Maybe it's inviting someone to church. Maybe it's sharing something of what Jesus has done in your life. Maybe it's offering to pray for someone when they're going through a difficult time or they're ill. Maybe it's sharing some sort of word that maybe God's given you when you're praying for them in your own time. Maybe it's telling them something about who Jesus is. Whatever it is, when those opportunities open up, we have to boldly step into them. But I'm aware that as I'm talking about this and say, talking about boldly stepping into opportunities, that we need to not confuse spirit-empowered boldness with worldly boldness. Because the word bold so often makes you think that it means I'm going to be able to say this confidently. The words are going to roll off my tongue. I'm not going to feel a single inhibition, a single feeling of awkwardness or fear. It's just going to be all natural. That's spirit-empowered boldness. Sometimes it is, but often 
it's not. Often spirit-empowered boldness looks a bit different to that. Sometimes it does come with feeling awkward or feeling a bit scared, but it means speaking anyway. Do you know, when we think of a spirit-empowered, bold preacher, I bet the first person that comes to many of our minds is the Apostle Paul. Because we look at his life, we look at his missionary journeys, and we think, wow, this is someone who went all around the world, preaching the gospel, facing persecution, planting churches, making disciples, and he seemed to just do it without a single twitch of his eye. And part of the reason is because we read of his story in Acts, and we forget that Acts covers about 30 years of history in about 30 chapters. There's not much space for detail. On top of that, Acts is about how the word of God just broke out into the ends of the earth. And Paul kind of rides on the coattails of that. But actually, sometimes we get to look at some of the letters that Paul wrote during those times. And we get maybe a bit more of a different perspective of what it was like for Paul. And maybe we get a different perspective of what it looks like to be someone who speaks for Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, boldly. I want to give you an example of this. So in Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth. I'm going to read out a few verses of this. I'm going to skip a couple verses in between 1 and about 8. So verse 1 says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And in verse 4, and he reasoned in a synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of a synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Doesn't that sound epic? Doesn't that sound like someone who is bold? Doesn't that sound like someone who speaks for Jesus and does not fear? And yet, when we read the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians after, and he reflects on this moment, this is what he says. He says, and I, when I came to you, talking about that same event, I was with you in weakness and in fear, fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So actually, Paul was amongst them and he was scared, but he spoke anyway and people believed but the effect was that they didn't believe in a powerful, bold preacher. They believed in a powerful God instead because it was not about Paul. He was not a bold in the world's understanding, but he was boldly empowered by the Spirit to speak irrespective of how he was feeling. We see this again and again. In Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, and it seems like the same story. He goes there, he preaches, there are people saved, people receive the Spirit, there's a church planted, he faces persecution, he seems to just brush it off of his shoulder. And then yet, when he writes to the Corinthians again, and he talks about his time in Ephesus, which he calls Asia, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength 
that we despaired of life itself. That doesn't sound like someone who just brushes it off their shoulder. That sounds like someone who's about to break down. That sounds like someone that even in spite of the pressure that he's facing, he's still speaking. That is what true boldness looks like. Don't be confused. Sometimes the Lord will work in you in a way that words just come off your tongue. But at least from my experience, the majority of the time, Holy Spirit boldness means just about getting the words out. But they come. It doesn't matter how you feel. It matters what God does. Um, When I was at university, I went to Bristol University, and I was part of the CU there from kind of the whole beginning of university right to the end. And in the third year, I became part of the team that kind of organized these mission weeks um, in university where we put on events every day and we'd invite people to these evangelistic events. And we also were part of an evangelistic football team. And this just basically meant that we started a football team and we had half Christians, half non-Christians, just for an opportunity to mix together. And just before our big mission week, we decided we wanted to make use of this football team to try to invite people to these events. And so what we've done is we put on an evangelistic FIFA tournament. And we just invited the guys around. We're going to play FIFA. And then at halftime, I was going to share my testimony. And now this was a long time ago when I wasn't as confident sharing my testimony. And to be honest, I was quite scared. I was quite feeling quite um, timid about it. And when I actually shared my testimony, there was a couple of non-Christians there. There was a couple of my Christian friends. And if you heard how I shared my testimony, you would have known I felt very timid. I was struggling to get the words out. They just about got out. And I don't know what fruit it bore amongst the non-Christians, But I do know that my friend Rob, who was there, who is a Christian, who is someone that I asked just a couple days earlier if he would share at one of the Mission Week events. And the reason is because he was part of a student band that had become quite famous amongst the students. And he also wasn't very confident. He wasn't particularly a good speaker. But when he saw me share, as timid as I was, it empowered him to share. And actually, he shared at this mission event where there were hundreds of students all wanting to hear him because he's this kind of famous singer. And he shared his testimony. And it was powerful. And people came to know the Lord that week. It's incredible that we don't have to feel as if we are the most confident, eloquent speakers. But we do have to take opportunities with the boldness that the Spirit gives us, which may just mean just getting the words out. Okay, so the last point I want to talk about is the bigger picture of evangelism. And this sounds sophisticated. It's really not, I promise. I just want to kind of paint a picture a bit about what opportunities you have to do evangelism in this church. Because maybe you're thinking, yes, I want to do that. But maybe you're thinking, I don't know how, I don't know where. And this is just something that I wish maybe that someone had told me when I first became a Christian or first started thinking about reaching people for Jesus. And I really want to ask the question, when I say the word evangelism, what comes to mind? What do you picture? Maybe you picture street outreach, church on the streets. I know you guys do that once a month, once a fortnight. Um, Maybe that's what you picture. Maybe you picture talking to someone, a friend, about Jesus. 
Maybe you think about having to stand at the front like this and talk to a large group of people. I don't know, but what I do know, going back to the point I made right at the beginning, is that God needs different people to reach all different kinds of people in loads of different ways. And sometimes we have one picture of what evangelism looks like. And because we're not good at it or we don't like it, we're paralyzed from any kind of evangelism because we think that is that. But really, I think when we understand how many different kinds of opportunities there are to reach people and how each thing fits into this bigger picture, A, it frees us into reaching out in a way that is most natural to us. And B, it frees us to take part in the things that we maybe don't feel so natural in, in a more free way. And so I just want to talk a bit about some of the ways that we have to reach out to people. And the first one is church on the streets, because I know you guys do this regularly. Church on the streets is a brilliant opportunity to reach people who don't have any Christian friends. There are some people in this country who don't have a Christian who is able, who is part of their life, who is able to share and to show Jesus to them in an intimate way. And Church on the Streets, if you like, is kind of a breadth of evangelism. You're reaching loads of different kinds of people, people who maybe aren't going to have any other opportunity to hear about Jesus. And you're able to reach way more people in a friendship, maybe you spend 5, 10 years, 15 years, 52 years like George Miller trying to reach five people. In church on the streets, you can reach 100 people in an hour or something like that. Also, church on the streets is the public demonstration of the church's witness. It is the church. It is you guys saying, we are here. And so often the Lord uses that in incredible ways. People who are looking for a church, maybe Christians who haven't been part of a church for a long time and the Lord's been prompting them, you need to get back into church. And then they see you guys out on the streets worshipping, filled with the joy of the Spirit. Maybe people who have never stepped foot in a church, but they've been thinking about it. They've been thinking, oh, I need to do something about this question, the meaning of life, who is God? And then they see you guys. Church on the streets is your congregation's public witness that we are here, that we're Jesus' people here in Forest Hill. And because of that, because it's the church's public witness, I would encourage and suggest that every single one of you can be involved in it, even if you feel that you're not good at worshipping on the streets or inviting people on the streets. You could come along and just smile. You could come along and just pray. You could come along and just hand out leaflets and not say anything. Because it is something that you guys do together as a congregation. It's powerful when you turn up nonetheless. On the other side of the spectrum is evangelism in your relationships. And this is completely the opposite in some sense. If church on the streets is about breadth, your relationships is about depth. You can show people who Jesus are. You have time with them. You can talk with them. They can see Jesus at work in your life. And I really want to encourage you that in your friendships, in your family relationships, in your work relationships, in the parents you meet at your children's school, see it as an opportunity to show and to tell people something about Jesus. It is one of the most crucial, I feel, crucial 
places that we need to be witnessing for Jesus. One of the most crucial places as you're thinking about who are you going to share Jesus with and see come to know him this year. This is one of the crucial arenas. And you know, sometimes one of the biggest things that puts us off of this arena is that it feels a bit awkward, doesn't it? Sometimes, you know, Jesus himself said it, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Sometimes the people who are closest to you, it feels like they are the hardest to reach. And maybe it's because you feel, oh, I've known this person for so long time, such a long time. They are not going to respond to Jesus. I know what they're like. Or maybe it's the particular kind of relationship that you have with them that kind of gives some kind of restriction. So maybe it's a work relationship and you think, oh, I can't talk about Jesus here. And you know, all those things are legit. All those things have some truth to them. But I want to encourage you that even within them, Jesus can open up opportunities through prayer. Um, Apart from working for ICFAS, I tutor maths. And um, I tutor a couple of different children. Last year, I was tutoring a family who were Muslim, at least by name. And I tutored their son and their daughter. And now, I just want you to think about this. So I have a kind of, uh, I go to their house and I tutor them. And so I have a relationship with this young girl who's 13 years old. So I want you to think about the kind of flags that are involved in this. One is that I obviously can't just use my whole tutoring session to talk about Jesus. Otherwise, I won't have a tutoring job. Obviously, this is a, a young girl. She's below 16. I have to, there's things I have to be sensitive about. Also, she's a Muslim. There's got, there's got to be things I've got to think about. Otherwise, the parents might get really kind of upset about what I'm doing. Despite all of that, I want to challenge myself and encourage myself to keep on thinking every time I turn up at their house that there is an opportunity to talk about Jesus here. And it's hard. Sometimes I, sometimes I switch off to that completely. I want to challenge myself that every time I turn up to their house, there is an, there's an opportunity in my relationship with this young person. And actually, outside their door, they have a, it's kind of like a little um, phylactery, if you know what that is, an Islam kind of token thing. I don't know. But every time I see that, it just really burdens me. And so I use that as an opportunity to pray. I just pray, Lord, bless this house with a real knowledge of who you are. And actually, after a couple months, this young girl starts to ask me about my personal life. She starts to ask me, oh, what did you do on the weekend? I said, oh, I was at a church event, or I was at a church conference, or I was doing something like this. And then, you know, you can't talk about it too long, because if you spend too long not teaching maths, you don't have a job. And so then, the next week, she asked me, oh, I went to a church once, and it was really weird. There were people falling over. What's all that about? And it opens up to an opportunity to talk about the Holy Spirit. And then the conversation continues. And it's incredible. You'd be surprised that when you start praying, even though, yes, there are these restrictions that we do have to think about. We can't be stupid. But also, we need to not feel like those kind of restrictions are going to stop us from being able to share about Jesus. Lastly, I don't have much time to talk about this, but lastly, I just want to say that there's a kind of middle ground in between these two as well, because as a church, you're going to be reaching out into the community to bless it in lots of other meaningful ways, maybe through popcorn 
or through dandelions or whatever it is. And these are ways that you're reaching out to bless and to show the love of Jesus to the community. But of course, alongside that, there's the intention that you would be able to welcome people into knowing Jesus as they see and they ask questions about why are you doing this? These are opportunities. And I really want to encourage you that as you think about how am I going to achieve this goal this year, to think about these things, you need to be making the most of your relationships for Jesus. You need to be taking part at least semi-regularly in your church on the streets outreach, what you do as a congregation. Because we want to put a smile on God's face, don't we? We want to please God. We want to know something of that joy that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit because people were getting caught up in this wonderful relationship between Father and Son and Spirit. And so I just want to pray for us. And as I'm praying for you, I actually want you to have in your mind and to think about whether this is a goal that you want to commit to, but also who are those people in your lives that you want to come to know Jesus this year? Father, we thank you for your great love for us, Lord. We thank you for your great love for our friends, for our families, Lord, for the people in the surrounding area around this church, Lord, for the people of Forest Hill, Lord. We thank you that you are the great lover of humankind. And Father, thank you that you've given us a job, Lord, that you haven't just decided to do things, do everything yourself, Lord, but that you use us, you desire to use us, Lord. That's the way you've set this whole universe up, Lord, and it's a privilege. Father, I ask you to come now by your spirit, Lord, that you would um, make real to us something of the joy that it, that it gives to you, Lord, to see people come to know you for the first time, Lord. And I pray you would come by your spirit and remind us or put on our hearts, Lord, the people that you're wanting us to um, reach out to this year. In Jesus' name, amen. Let your living word abide in me so richly as I abide in you. Let your living